Work Podcast, a podcast for the modern parent working in the modern world. Join us as we interview leading experts in their fields to unveil the secrets working parents need to succeed at work. My name is Tom Spiggle, and I welcome you to Parents at Work, a podcast for parents who want to excel at the office even though they have children. There will be no guests today, just me. In this episode, I want to share with you why I started this podcast and my own parenting story. First, the idea for this podcast came from being a parent of four children and the juxtaposition of two books, Jennifer Senior's All Joy and No Fun and Bruce Feller's The Secrets of Happy Families. All Joy and No Fun is a book about the phenomenon that parents generally score lower on happiness surveys in comparison to people without children. This flies in the face of the common view that having children is the crowning achievement in life. You have achieved the pitter-patter of little feet around the house, and so you should be happy. Miss Senior profiles parents who struggle mightily in the crosswinds of increasing expectations placed on parents, often by themselves, to raise well-adjusted kids while having increasingly fewer resources in terms of time, money, and a network of family able to help. Given the title, I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you that the book does have a silver lining and that parents, while often not all that happy, do ex- experience a significant amount of joy and meaning in their lives as a result of having children. If all joy and no fun paints a picture of the problem, the book The Secrets of Happy Families points at some possible solutions. In this book, Bruce Feller looks to the lessons learned in business and other fields to see if they can teach us how to function better as families. It's worth a read. For instance, he profiles a family that has adapted Agile Management, a project management tool used in the software industry, to help with family meetings and even streamline the usual hectic scramble get out of the house morning routine. I read in awe as he describes a mother sitting in a chair, reading the paper, as her children dutifully check a to-do list to get all the morning chores done. Not that I've been able to replicate this in my house, but I dream. My ambition for this podcast is that it will continue the conversation between these two books. Here I will discuss, often with guests, the challenges of modern-day parenting and what things we can do collectively to help address some of those needs. For instance, sleep deprivation is a part of parenthood, but certainly there are best practices that parents can use to weather that storm. And I'm not talking about how to get the kids to sleep. There's plenty of advice about that. This podcast is about parents and what parents need to live happily even though they have kids. So stay tuned for management gurus, efficiency experts, and professionals who study sleep among other topics of interest to parents. If you have ideas for topics that would be interesting, please do not hesitate to let me know by using the link to our website, www.spigglelaw.com backslash podcast. Again, that's www.spigglelaw.com backslash podcast. You can also find it in the show notes for this episode. I should also mention that we had an article in LinkedIn that got a significant amount of response. It's titled, My Job Kept Me From Being a Great Dad, So I Quit. You can find the link to it in the show notes. The article got, at least as of this podcast, almost 10,000 likes and well over 400 comments. The response to this article shows what an issue this is for parents, and it's that phenomenon which has inspired this podcast. 
I will also be talking to guests about their own parenting story, how they manage to get things done or often not get things done as parents. Solutions are great, but sometimes it's just good to hear that the problems we face as parents are common and survivable. Misery does indeed love company and success. And now for my parenting story. I didn't start this podcast to sell my book, I promise, but since I'm sharing my parenting story and you're fired, I'll read the chapter now. This is also the same content that we shared on LinkedIn in the article uh, referenced earlier. It was shortly before Christmas in 2005 the call came. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia called me to offer me a position as an Assistant United States Attorney for the District of Columbia. I was 33, married with a 10-month-old son, and this was a long time in coming. After graduating from Georgetown University Law Center in 2001, I returned to my home state of North Carolina to join a mid-sized firm in Raleigh. As a new associate, I worked in the section of the firm that represented school boards all across the state. My interest was in litigation, and that is what I did, handling everything from contested student suspensions to defending school systems when sued. I loved the job, but soon realized that I would see little courtroom time in a civil litigation practice. After two years, I got engaged to a woman whom I met in law school. She was in Washington, D.C. and announced that she had no desire to move to North Carolina. I knew it was a lost cause when, upon visiting the state for the first time with me, she told me that she thought the trees in the state grew too close together. Much I could do about that. So I gave up that tug of war and got a job clerking for a judge in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. Before taking the bench, he was a superstar in the U.S. Attorney's Office where he prosecuted many high-profile murder cases. Like me, he had started in private practice only to realize that he would rarely see the inside of a courtroom. He told me that if I wanted trial experience, there was no better place than the U.S. Attorney's Office, particularly in D.C. I applied with his support right out of the clerkship. A spot in any U.S. Attorney's Office is highly competitive. These offices have their pick of bright, competitive lawyers who want to work on challenging cases that involve a lot of trial work. While many are motivated by the desire to serve the public, it doesn't hurt that many who serve as assistant U.S. attorneys go on to high-profile appointed positions or to lucrative jobs in private firms. Even to get an interview is an achievement, often requiring a call from a VIP to even get your application considered. The interview itself is rigorous on multiple rounds to include giving a sample opening argument in front of senior staff in the office. The final interview is with the U.S. attorney. With the support of my judge, I got an interview and made it to the final round only to be turned down. It is not uncommon for it to take applicants more than one try to get in. I was advised to get some criminal law experience, up to that point I had none, and to reapply. So I did. I got a job with a boutique law firm that specialized in white-collar criminal defense. It was a dream job in many ways. Great work with some of the top criminal defense lawyers in the city. I spent two years with the firm. While there, my wife gave birth to our first, a boy. I had always wanted to be a father, but I imagine like most, I had no real idea what this meant. No one prepared me for how much I would completely fall in love with that little boy. I was also unprepared for how much work being a father would take. Harrison was not the best sleeper, and my wife and I spent many nights with little sleep. My wife worked as an attorney at a large law firm, so we shared childcare duties as evenly as we could. Fortunately, my work was flexible and, for the most part, low stress. A good thing, too, because we also had a high-maintenance dog, a cocker spaniel named Sawyer. I found Sawyer running around lost in front of my law school while I was studying for the bar. When no one claimed him from the shelter, I adopted him. A sweetheart of a dog, Sawyer soon developed multiple health problems, including diabetes. After many expensive trips to the vet, we found a combination of medications and twice-daily insulin shots that could keep him healthy. Sawyer, however, being a dog, did not always cooperate with his treatment. If he found a sugar-laden treat, like an entire loaf of bread, for instance, that he could reach, he would eat it. 
This would make his blood sugar go haywire. As a result, he would often pee and poop all over the house, which of course had to be cleaned up. And Sawyer would also occasionally have seizures, sometimes necessitating an emergency trip to the vet. We joked that owning Sawyer was equivalent to having another car payment. His care was so expensive. Still, life was good. I had a good job and was able to get home to spend time with my son. I knew many attorneys who by choice or necessity were weekend parents. Due to heavy billing requirements and travel, their kids were asleep when they left in the morning and on their way to bed when they got home. After having Harrison, it was clear to me that I would never make that choice. It wasn't so much of a conscious decision, it just was. There was no way I was not going to be around him during waking hours every day. I quickly surmised that it would be difficult to cramp parenting into a few hours on the weekend. I know that many parents don't have a choice. I was and am lucky to have the ability to structure my life within certain parameters as I want. But that choice was about to be much more difficult. I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in the fall of 2006. The D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is unique in that it handles both state-level criminal matters, primarily street crime like assault, drug crimes, etc., as well as prosecutions involving violations of federal law. This is a real benefit for attorneys seeking trial experience because state-level prosecutions tend to take less time and go to trial more often. While an attorney in a private practice might have a case go to trial once every five to ten years and a federal prosecutor might have a trial twice a year, a prosecutor in D.C. Superior Court might have a jury trial every month, not to mention dozens of contested witness hearings before a judge. Indeed, a prosecutor in D.C. Superior Court literally lives in the courthouse. All new prosecutors start in the misdemeanor section. This is the trial lawyer's version of trial by fire. D.C. Superior Court is high volume with dozens of misdemeanor cases going on every day. Prosecutors handling these cases sometimes literally receive a file hours before a case goes to trial. This is, as you might imagine, both exhilarating and terrifying. It is particularly difficult for type A personalities that make it into the office. Like me, many of them got where they are by mastering every little detail of cases that they worked on. If you had a matter go to court, you prepared the case and knew everything that you could about it. This was impossible in the U.S. Attorney's Office. The case volume was too high and prosecutors in misdemeanor sections were often assigned cases that they didn't prepare. Sometimes, many times, there would be mistakes, witnesses not subpoenaed, evidence not procured, etc. But the prosecutor in the courtroom could not soothe an angry judge by noting that someone else prepared the case. You just had to do the best that you could. This was a harrowing time for all new prosecutors. It was not uncommon for attorneys to lose weight given the long hours and stress. I did. Slight to begin with, I dropped approximately 160 pounds on a six-foot frame to sometimes under 150. My suits hung off me, held up by a belt, cinched up tight as I could get it. Many of my colleagues were younger than me. Some were unmarried. Most did not have children. As I soon figured out, this made a big, big difference. Like me, in my childless years, these attorneys worked until they could work no more. They went home to relax a few hours before getting a few hours sleep before starting the process all over again. I could not do that if I wanted to see my son during the week, not to mention see my wife or take on the many childcare duties. And anyone that has children will tell you it is a wonderful thing to see your toddler after work. It is also just a lot of work. You can't come home, kick off your shoes, and have a beer and unwind. Your child is on you from the moment you walk in the door. Some of this is delightful. Your child is cute and full of energy, happy to see you, but you still must be on. Sometimes it's not so delightful. Your child is tired and strung out, crying, throwing food, and so on. With him is the now strung out person that has cared for him all day, just waiting for the opportunity to hand your little darling off. Harrison at this point was walking but unaware of danger. Turn your back for a second and they are trying to stick a finger in a light socket or tumble headfirst down the steps. Just being with a child of that age is nonstop, sometimes grinding work. And this is when the child is in a good mood. 
often toddlers at the end of a very long day or not. Looking back on it and comparing him to his sibling, Harrison was high maintenance, on the move all the time, and when he was in a bad mood, he was in a bad mood. Come home to a toddler in a good mood is work. Coming home to one in a bad mood is like walking into a buzzsaw. So while my childless colleagues headed off to a bar with friends or even just to lie down on the couch, I went home to chase it around a toddler and tend to a high-maintenance dog. I know that many endure worse. We had it good and that my wife and I had jobs and everyone was healthy. But compared to life without kids, this was a lot of work and stress. I did well at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was good on my feet and did well in court. As a result, I was put on a special kid caseload, which involved misdemeanor prosecutions of child sex abuse cases. Unlike most misdemeanor cases, these were legally complicated and often involved expert testimony from nurses and doctors. Not to mention that the subject matter was heartbreaking. I was thrilled with the assignment, but it took a toll. The long hours, stressful hours at work, followed by stress at home caused health problems. The first and foremost was difficulty with insomnia. I began to wake up in the middle of the night, heart pounding, unable to go to sleep. When I was asleep, I was awakened many times by a crying Harrison. I left the house early every day so that I could meet with my witnesses before court. I left my suits downstairs because I couldn't see to dress myself in my room. Even if I could, I didn't dare make noise to wake my wife and child. I sometimes came downstairs to find the sawyer had peed and pooped all over the floor. I couldn't just leave it, so I'd clean it up, choke down some breakfast, and sprint to catch the bus. Eventually, my class rotated out of misdemeanors into the trial sections. Guns and drugs was the next rotation. If anything, it was more stressful than misdemeanors. Now we were trying jury trials. Case volume was crushing. It was particularly difficult starting a new rotation because you were taking over someone else's caseload as they rotated to other sections in the office. This meant that I had to learn an entirely new caseload and relevant laws that cases kept on churning. All of my colleagues were under immense stress. Many, including myself, were thrown into situations where mastery was simply impossible. Survival was the name of the game. Of course, there were benefits. We won a trial experience, and we got it. Within a year or two, a prosecutor in the D.C. office takes more cases to trial than many attorneys do in their entire career. It is, as the expression goes, like drinking from a fire hose. While I learned the hard way, learn I did, and a lot. I don't think a lawyer ever gets over trial nerves, but I soon developed my own style and rhythm. I learned the coveted skill of trying jury trials. My own routine became even more extreme. I stopped trying to get breakfast at home. Instead, I drank a cup of coffee and eat oatmeal every morning in the office while meeting with officers or reviewing cases for that day. I continued to sleep poorly. I often felt like I was in a fog. I was learning a lot, but it was not fun or comfortable. Unwilling to miss time with my family, I left every day at 6, no matter what. Some of my colleagues at this point were beginning to start having families too, though the majority of them still did not have children. After surviving guns and drugs, I rotated to another trial section, this one in domestic violence. Though not as brutal as guns and drugs, this was a very busy rotation. The case is more serious, involving violent crimes that required putting witnesses in a grand jury. The domestic violence section was great. The supervisors were supportive and understanding. During this time, my wife gave birth to our second son, Jonah. He was born healthy and relatively happy. We were thrilled. I was unprepared, however, with how difficult having a second would be. Sure, I knew it would be more work, but having raised one son to two years of age, I figured that I had seen the worst of the learning curve. Not true. Adding a second was exponentially more difficult. With one child, there was always at least the possibility of getting a break. If your spouse could take the child for an hour or so, you could, oh, I don't know, take a shower, read a book, or go for a run. With two, no one ever got a break. Ever. To make matters worse, we had a small house and the boys shared a room. This made coordinating naps difficult and pretty much no one slept all the way through the night. 
If coming home to one child could be work, coming home to two was a test of patience and strength. I remember times walking up to the house and being able to hear our newborn cry, Harrison scream, he was discovering tantrums by now, and our dog howl. I wish I could say that I was being funny. I continued to make family a priority. I did my half of the child care and continued to share household duties. I did most of the shopping and cooking in my family. This meant that I pretty much did nothing but work and raise children, as did my wife. By now, I was chronically sleep-deprived, and as I now know, depressed. I would cry for no reason, had little appetite, and could not sleep, even though exhausted. I finally confided with my doctor, who sent me to see a psychiatrist. She put me on antidepressants and a prescription sleep aid. She said I suffer from generalized anxiety disorder. Despite this, I continued to perform well at the office, receiving high marks, even winning an award for my performance in the domestic violence unit. No one at work had any idea what I was going through with good reason. It was a high-stress environment. Everyone was operating in the red zone. One might reasonably ask why I didn't look for another job or ask for a different assignment within the office or even a new job. As my doctor said, you know, in many parts of the country, working like this would be considered insanity. Someone might say, why are you doing this? Just find another job. But this is a different sort of town. My husband is an attorney, and I know that your job is considered by many to be the holy grail. I didn't consider scaling back or quitting an option. It's just not something that people in the office commonly did. Moreover, it was not in keeping with how I wanted to view myself. I didn't need help. I just needed to tough it out. Certainly, women have challenges balancing childcare and work. In some ways, women face more complicated issues. Certainly, only women can be pregnant. Still, men face their own headwinds. Unlike women, men are rewarded for having a family. There has been research demonstrating that resumes from men indicating that the applicant has children, for example, other activities, coaching a son's little league team, are more likely to get selected for interviews in the same resume with a woman's name on it. Employers, consciously or not, like the picture of a male worker with a family. Not so much if it is a woman. So men have it easier in that regard. The same studies suggest that men with families are penalized more harshly than women if they ask to take time off to care for a child. Seems like we like men to demonstrate virility and stability by having a family, primarily because it is assumed they will perform better at work. If a man betrays that notion by indicating that he occasionally prioritizes family over work, then he is summarily kicked off of that perch and hard. I no doubt internalize that idea. Sure, I could want to participate in the life of my children, but that had to be on my own time and only after I had done well at work. I want to note here that no one at the U.S. Attorney's Office ever suggested that I sacrifice family for work. Indeed, the office, particularly the domestic violence section, was rightly known for being family-friendly. I shudder at the thought of working with family stress in a job that is openly hostile to caregiver responsibilities. And yet, I hear about it daily in my practice. This is shameful behavior on the part of employers. It is a marvel at what some of my clients have had to endure. Eventually, I realized I could not maintain the way I was working. Indeed, trying to balance work and family was backfiring at home. Because I was in constant state of exhaustion, I had little patience at home, was short with my wife and children. It was taking a toll. I went to my supervisor and requested an early rotation to the appellate section, known for being not nearly so hectic. To the office's credit, they quickly complied with this request, and I moved to appellate, and not before I came down with a terrible respiratory tract infection. I basically hobbled into that section, in many respects broken. After completing that rotation, I left the office to open my own firm. For years, I dealt with the guilt over my departure. Many of my colleagues expressed admiration that I would leave the safety of a government job in the midst of an economic meltdown, no less, to hang a shingle. For me, however, it felt different. I had always wanted to start my own firm, true. I had had that dream since before I graduated law school, but the way it happened felt far from heroic. I felt a failure. 
I've since made my peace with that time in my life and recognized what I did did not reflect a weakness on my part. It was just a difficult time in my life that I dealt with the best that I could. As I look back on it, I realized that what made that balancing act so difficult and nearly impossible for me was having children. You will find it not surprising, particularly if you have children, that becoming a parent is a profound stage in life. There are many wonderful things about it, and some not so wonderful. I faced the difficulties that I did in part because I simply was not willing to forego playing a significant daily role in my children's lives. This is not heroic. This decision was as much for me as it was for them. I would like to think that in the long run, my family will benefit from having me around, though to be honest, I'm not sure if that is a given. Still, that is a choice I made. Some of that was structural. Perhaps it would have been different if my wife stayed home, but she didn't. We relied on her salary, so it wasn't an option. Perhaps I wouldn't have felt the rush to get home if we as a family had structured our lives so that Anne was responsible for most of the childcare and household responsibilities. I don't know that that would have been ideal and would have involved a lot more unrelenting work for Anne. In any event, that was not how our family structure worked. Like other attorneys make different choices. I recall hearing a story about a prosecutor who cross-examined Kenneth Lay in the federal prosecution following the collapse of Enron. This was a career-making case. This AUSA will carry that badge for the rest of his life. When he went back into private practice, this sentence in his bio, Attorney so-and-so cross-examined Mr. Kenneth Lay in the Enron prosecution, leading to a guilty verdict against Mr. Lay, will literally make him millions of dollars over the course of his career. In the story that I heard, it mentioned that after a trial, he went straight home to see his wife and children. His youngest daughter, I believe, was around two, and mentioned that he had not seen her for six months. That was a quarter of her short life. I recall thinking at the time I would never make that choice, even if you could guarantee I would have a successful front-page prosecution like that. I would just not be away from my children for that length of time. I'm not claiming hero parent status. I don't mean to criticize this prosecutor and many other workers like him for making that choice. He's likely a great father. There is no question that the time he put into that case and away from his family, through the income it will ultimately generate, will give his children options that mine will not have. What this AUSA and I do, however, share in common is that we both have the luxury of making those choices. Many, perhaps most parents, don't. Working is not so much a quality of life issue, it's a matter of survival. A mother works two jobs and rarely sees her kids, not because it allows her to afford a higher standard of living, it's what she has to do to afford rent and food. All this is a very long-winded way of sharing with you why I do this work. Raising children is without argument a matter of fundamental importance for this nation. Yet for whatever reason, our country has chosen not to devote many public resources, for instance, subsidized daycare, into helping parents make balanced career decisions. I think this is short-sighted. Refusing, for instance, to provide paid sick leave to a restaurant worker with kids means that she has to come to work sick. Not only does this expose everyone at the restaurant to the risk of illness, it puts great strain on her. How effective is she as a mother when she comes home after working a 12-hour shift as a waitress? What if she gets sick and just can't come to work and loses her job and then her apartment? Even from a selfish perspective, this affects all of us. That kid, the one you don't know, who just lost his apartment, he's potentially a future dentist, bus driver, or teacher. What happens to him now? These are all policy matters that are worthy of debate, but in the meantime, the laws that we do have to protect those with caregiver responsibilities the Family Medical Leave Act, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and so forth, they need to be enforced for your sake, for the sake of us all. That's why we do what we do. So that's the inspiration for this podcast, where I'm going with it, and my own parenting story. 
Thanks for listening. Look forward to sharing other episodes with you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Parents at Work podcast. Are you interested in learning more about our show, our hosts, or today's guest? Do you have a comment or question you'd like to share with the Parents at Work community? Then contact us at www.spigglelaw.com slash podcast. We'll see you next time.